Hi, sexy people. I'm Dr. Tammy. Welcome to The Trouble with Sex. Today's guest, Dr. Marty Klein, I am thrilled to have because we haven't talked for a while, Marty, and I miss you. That's very sweet, Tammy. We never get to talk anymore. We don't get to talk anymore. So the only way I get to talk to Dr. Marty Klein is to invite him on The Trouble with Sex as one of the top experts in the field of sexuality. Dr. Marty has been a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified sex therapist for over 35 years. He's focused his entire career on a single set of goals, telling the truth about sex, helping people feel sexually adequate and powerful, and supporting the healthy sexual and intimate expression and exploration of men and women. Marty has written a bunch of books, like seven. He's authored over 100 articles, and his book, America's War on Sex, was honored as Book of the Year by the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And he's a frequent expert media contributor and guest, and he's a tireless international speaker. He's truly one of the most acclaimed experts in the field, and we're going to talk today about his thoughts on sex addiction, pornography, and how we need to change the way we look and talk about sex. I can't think of a better guest to have on today. Thanks, Marty, for being here. Tammy, thanks for that lovely introduction. It's so nice to see you as well as hear you. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you. So tell me what, first what you've been up to today and what you're, uh, what you're working on. Like, what, what's your thing? What's the, giving you the juice right now? <laughs> Just trying to get through the day, Tammy. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. It's been a rough uh, year for all of us. I've been doing a series of webinars, training uh, therapists in uh, human sexuality. And I've been uh, doing a lot of case consultation groups for therapists who want to improve their skills in uh, dealing with sexuality and intimacy and relationships. And I miss being on stage, but doing webinars and case consultation groups is uh, the next best thing. I'm seeing my patients actually, as you probably had the same experience, the first few months after COVID, there was sort of a dip in uh, people uh, starting therapy. But once people realized that, oh, this thing is going to take a while, then I got flooded with, uh, with new patients. So for the last year or so, I've been uh, actually seeing more people than usual. And since I'm not traveling, I'm able to do that. I'm tinkering around with my next book. Uh, I want to write a book about what we're not allowed to talk about when it comes to sex. Mm, cool. It's a long book. That's going to be, that's going to be a, a really long, long book. book. Right? <laughs> it, interestingly enough, you know, there have always been things that we're not allowed to talk about when it comes to sex, but the content of what we're not allowed to talk about has changed over time. And since I'm not a young thing trying to build my career, I'm not afraid to get a few people angry for a change. And uh, <laughs> That seems so unlike you. <laughs> yeah, doesn't it? So I think I'm going to write a book about what we're not allowed to talk about when it comes to sex. I like that. I think that's so like culturally relevant. Yeah. You know, and it'll be interesting if you do it from sort of a historical perspective of how things have changed. Cool idea. Oh, good. Well, just off the top of your head, what do you think is the number one thing we're not allowed to talk about? The serious answer to that question is we're not allowed to talk about the fact that there are things that we're not allowed to talk about. We're not allowed to talk about the fact that if you talk about the various sides of the questions about, say, trans issues, you'll get slammed. 
You're not allowed to talk about uh, the fact that we can't talk about whether or not asexuality is a sexual orientation. You're old enough to remember that back in the day, people disagreed about stuff. (laughs) People would say, I disagree with you, and you're probably a jerk because I disagree with you. But now people don't say I disagree with you. People call you names like transphobic or they say that you're uh, erasing my identity. People try and get you banned from speaking. People try and get your book contracts canceled. Complain to you to ethics boards, things like that. Exactly. Exactly. Complain about you to ethics boards. So it's a very different environment. Back in, say, 25, 30 years ago, there was a much healthier environment where people, intelligent people, could disagree. You and I have certainly disagreed about one thing or another, but now disagreement doesn't hardly ever take place. Now it takes place is how dare you even think that that's something that we can talk about. I totally agree with you. I think I think that's so true. And I think it's even like within the last 10 years, you can't have a healthy discourse with anyone that would even lead to any kind of education. So if you make a mistake, you can't even have someone tell you, you know what, that's really not what I like to be called. So it's better if you yeah. call me this. There's not. There's no yeah. space for that at all. Nothing. You can't have a conversation with anyone. So hopefully when I write this book, hopefully there will be media outlets that are willing to have me come on and talk about my new book. Uh, But if nobody else does, I know you. So (laughs) I definitely will. And I hope we disagree on something so we can we can act it out in a healthy way. I think it's a good example setting to be able to disagree about things and still remain friends and have conversations about things that maybe represent the fact that we come from different spaces and that there's room for all kinds of opinions on things and that we can learn mm-hmm. from each other. I think that's a really good a really good point and I think that's really needed. You seem to be on sort of the cutting edge of a lot of political ideas about sexuality and that you know you're not necessarily a fringe person, you're always challenging what's politically correct. A couple of years ago somebody pointed out to me that if you go to Wikipedia and you look up sex addiction, that they label me or they they mention me as the foremost critic of the concept. So that was sort of a cool birthday present when somebody pointed that out to you. But you're right. I've always uh, looked at the intersection of politics and psychology. And you can't really understand sexuality without understanding history. You can't really understand sexuality without understanding sociology and, of course, psychology. And and if you if you if you look at things historically and and with a cultural lens, you can't help but be political, <laughs> because there are always going to be social agents who want to control and shape our sexual expression, and so that means that sexuality is always going to be political, and it's really defined by the sort of who says what is pathological, like what is healthy sex, and you have really been a voice in trying to you know get away from the definition of, you know, what is quote unquote normal and, you know, talked about like what is healthy sex is what the person thinks is healthy for them. And I I really, I respect that, that you have a voice. You're not afraid to use it. Thank you. And that's why you have a podcast and I don't. (laughs) Well, well, I don't know. I think your podcast might be pretty popular. (laughs) You know, I mean, a lot of people are talking about this idea of sex addiction. It's in the news now with Matt Gates and a lot of other conversations about you know, what is sex addiction? Does it exist? Is it an excuse to get away with whatever the hell you want to do? Like, 
It, it's not a diagnosis in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that we use as psychologists and and to label people with a pathology or diagnosis. And so, you know, there is a big controversy in the sex therapy world about not being sure not to label people as sex addicts. And yet a lot of people self-diagnose as sex addicts because they feel out of control in their sexual behavior. So tell us about the educate us, tell our listeners, what, what is this, what's going on with this whole sex addiction controversy? Well, I already get to disagree with you about a small point here. Good. Um, Let's go. Let's have at it. I do not observe that there's a big controversy in the sex therapy field about this. There's a big controversy in the psychology field. There's a big controversy out in the public. But most of our colleagues in sex therapy don't really give a lot of thought to sex addiction because they, they know that there's no such thing. So... Having said that, to answer the bigger part of your question, there's lots of people, and this is not a new phenomenon. This goes back thousands of years. This is even in the Bible, right? There's lots of people who feel upset about the consequences of their sexual choices. There's also lots of people who are upset about the consequences of their food choices and the consequences of a lot of their other choices. And that's part of the human condition. We face choices all the time about a whole number of things, and we do the best we can, and sometimes we make smarter choices than other times. The question is, if if people are reasonably intelligent, how do we account for the fact that they make choices that they know in advance are probably not going to work out very well? How does that happen? So it's really a, a matter of integrity is what you're saying. Like making a choice based on what they know, it doesn't align with their own morality. I mean, what are you saying? Well, it's not just morality. And, and, and I, I don't know that I would use the word integrity. I mean, take something as simple and as life-changing as who you marry. I got married when I was the first time when I was 21 years old. I didn't want to get married at all. And I didn't want to marry this person. But <laughs> I hope she's not listening. <laughs> well, we got divorced four years later, and I'm sure she went on to have a perfectly lovely life. In any case, how do we account for the fact that an intelligent person who didn't want to get married got married and who didn't want to marry that person, a very nice person, by the way, just not the right person for me. How do we account for the fact that people do that? How do we account for the fact that a woman will say to her friends, I know he's no good, but I just can't help myself? How do we account for that? How do we account for the fact that every time you go to a restaurant before COVID and one of these days, there's always some group of people at the next table who order dessert and they all look at each other and they all say, I shouldn't do this, but they do it anyway. How do we account for so that? So wait, are you, you're, you're combining those two choices? Like I Absolutely. married the wrong guy with, I shouldn't have had dessert. I mean, there's a wide range of, I shouldn't have slept with that sex worker because I'm married and I know that I'm going to feel like bad about myself afterwards versus I shouldn't have had that extra piece of pie versus I shouldn't have married that alcoholic. I mean, that, those are a wide range of decisions that probably have different cultural implications and have to do with your childhood and your own addiction. Like there's a, there's a, we can spend hours on this, Marty. So I'm not, I'm not clear on what the connection is. Like, is it? Well, well. Let me, let me tell you what, what all of the, obviously those situations are different in terms of the gravity of them. Sure. But all those decisions raise the same question. How is it that people do stuff that they know in advance 
is probably not going to work out. It's going to have negative consequences. It's going to have consequences that they don't like. I don't even need to label them negative consequences. How do we account for the fact that reasonably intelligent people make choices whose consequences they know in advance are probably not going to work out? And whether it's marrying when you shouldn't marry or having dessert when you're trying to lose weight or going to a sex worker when you promised your partner that you wouldn't, it all raises the same question. How do we account for the fact that people make choices over and over again, over and over again, whose consequences they don't like? So one model of decision-making that some people are using to explain this phenomenon is addiction. Shopping addiction, gambling addiction, sex addiction, and it's prob- that the use of that concept with sexuality is problematic. It covers up the real processes that are going on with people. It completely trivializes, it discounts the psychological or sociological or cultural factors that go into people making sexual decisions whose consequences they don't like. So my work, since Patrick Horns invented this idea back in the 80s, my work has been to challenge people who use this concept. My work has has been to show people, here's what people say if you ask them enough questions, why did you do that? You said you wouldn't go to a sex worker. You you promised yourself you wouldn't do it after the last time when you, uh, you were scared to death that you had picked up an STD, which fortunately you didn't, but you swore to yourself you wouldn't go to a sex worker again. Here you are, you're in the eighth massage parlor in eight months. What's up with that? And if you ask people enough questions, they will tell you. But once a person says that they're a sex addict or once the clinician says, oh, obviously you're a sex addict, that's pretty much the end of the conversation. I see. And what a good therapist is supposed to do is when the patient is done answering questions, a good therapist keeps asking questions. So if you ask people, why do you keep going to massage parlors? Eventually, they will say things like, it's nice to get some touching. It's nice to assert that I have my own autonomy and you are not the boss of me. A lot of people go to massage parlors. It's a way of saying to their their girlfriends or their wives, screw you, I'm going to do whatever I want. It's got nothing to do with the hand job. The hand job is kind of a bonus. Or as they say in the trade, it's a happy ending. So, Well, isn't there also more to an alcoholic story if you keep asking them questions? I mean, if we look at the addiction model, just to play you know, devil's advocate, if we look at the addiction model as that there is some reality to people who have a biological addiction to drugs or alcohol, and if you look at their stories, there's always another story under that. I drank because I blah, 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 or I was looking for, or I was seeking out, or there's always another story under the addiction. There's, you know, the harm reduction model too about, you know, that people are really seeking connection in their addiction. So if we're looking at quote unquote sex addiction as it's really a sort of a narrative around what people are seeking or longing for needing that there's always more to the story. I'm still not clear that our listeners are going to understand the difference between that and other forms of addiction. The difference is that alcohol is a substance and that an alcoholic's body is different than a non-alcoholic's body. When a person 
has an alcohol or a drug addiction, their body's ability to metabolize the substance is different. Whereas with sexuality, there's no difference between the body of a, a person who makes good sexual decisions and the body of a person who makes poor sexual decisions. So what about all these theoretical models that say, well, it's the brain chemistry that's different and it releases all these chemicals in your body and hor sexual hormones and then you get addicted to your own sex hormones. What do you say to those people? Well, I say two things which are radically different from each other. The first thing that I say to them is, you know, isn't it interesting that psychologists in general are completely illiterate when it comes to brain chemistry and MRIs and all of that stuff. And yet, here is the one arena in which some psychologists fall in love with brain chemistry and fMRIs. That's the first thing that I say. And the second thing that I say is that the brain is constantly releasing chemicals. And if you look at the MRIs of people who are cuddling their grandchildren, the brain lights up in exactly the same way that it lights up during sex. So the fact that there's a reward system for sexual decision-making, of course there is. There's a reward system for every single thing that, that we do. There's a reason that I came on your show today. Oh, so your brain is lighting up right now? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Just like a piece of pie. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you've ever been interested in becoming a sex therapist or a sexuality counselor, find out more at integrativesextherapyinstitute.com or istitraining.com, I-S-T-I training.com. ISTI trains therapists to be the best sex and couples therapist that they can be. Classes are easy. They're online. You can download information anytime and apply today. That's istitraining.com, Integrative Sex Therapy Institute. I don't disagree that, that the brain, you know, responds to sexual experiences, but what we don't have the ability to measure is, let's say that you, that you go to a sex worker and you're getting a hand job. Let's just say. Let's just say. And your brain lights up. Like pie. Yep. I got it. We don't have a way of measuring what it's lighting up about. Is it lighting up about the fact that you're experiencing your autonomy or is it lighting up about the fact that you've got a pretty naked girl in front of you? Or guy. Or guy. Right. So we, we know that the reward system is, is activated. We're not sure about the narrative around it or if it's from the oxytocin that's released afterwards or if it's the dopamine or like what, what the rush is really about. And when then we're not sure about the narrative about the rush. Like, why do you need the rush and what is it solving for you? And then, you know, what about chocolate? Like that gives you a rush too. And there's all kinds of ways that people get off. And I'm wondering, like, you know a lot about pornography use. And so is that also something that you think that people can get addicted to or use compulsively? And, and what's the difference there? Oh, there's a big difference. And the answer is yes, of course, people can use it compulsively. People can use anything compulsively. And our field of psychology has many years of accumulated wisdom in how we deal with people who are acting at their compulsivity. I don't think it's addictive because if you if you look at all the hallmarks of addiction, they don't apply to pornography. I mean, there's no withdrawal symptoms and there's no increase in the, in the dosage need and, and all that stuff. Of course, there are some people who use pornography in ways that are not good for them. I don't think there's a thing on earth that somebody isn't using in a bad way. 
There are lots of people who have car accidents. We don't say, you know, we should take away cars. What does go on is that for various reasons, people masturbate with pornography and they do it in ways that either they don't approve of or their partner doesn't approve of or they feel guilty about. And they frequently blame the pornography rather than blaming the role that it plays in their lives. So when people come in and they say to me that they have a porn addiction, I want to know about the rest of their lives. You know, tell me about, tell me about your relationship. Tell me about the circumstances under which you use pornography and what is it about this that you find problematic and all of that. Sometimes, sometimes I, I had a guy uh, about a year ago who was self-identified straight. He only had sex with women. He had a girlfriend. He only had sex with her before her. He only had sex with women. But he had this weird thing that he was afraid that he was gay. He was straight, straight as an arrow, but he was afraid that he was gay. Why? Because whenever he was in the locker room at the health club, he used to look at other guys' penises and compare his to theirs. And, and kind of common for boys, right? Of course, totally common. Yeah. I mean, what could be more fascinating than a penis? So, and what could be more about your own self esteem? About like, am I good right, enough? Right, right. So, whenever he goes to the health club, he looks at all these other penises. So, he's afraid that he's gay. And so, periodically, he would look at what he called gay porn, which I don't call it gay porn. I call it porn with same gender sex. Men who have sex with men. Men who have sex with men. And he would test to see if he got excited. And if he got excited, he would be like really upset. That was his litmus test, his erection. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so here's a guy who was using porn in a self-harming way, right? When he looked at straight porn, it wasn't a problem, what he called straight porn. But when he looked at porn periodically of men having sex with other men, he was doing this in a self-harming way. Now, I don't think this guy had a porn problem. I think his problem was much deeper than that. And I think if we could take, if we could erase porn from the face of the earth, it wouldn't fix this guy's problem at all. Well, no, because he could just have fantasies in his head and test himself. Exactly. Use a different litmus test, but just in his head. Exactly. But if you believe in porn addiction, you could easily define this guy as a porn act because he kept doing it over and over again. He hated the consequences, but he kept doing it. He couldn't stop. And he was really, really concerned about it. There's that fit, there's all your diagnostic criteria for porn addiction right there. Right. And we you see that pretty often, you know, that you know, arousal indicates some kind of orientation, which is not necessarily true. You know, people get turned on by watching people have sex. Like it doesn't matter, you know, and I think there was that Marta Mina study where they, you know, wired up women watching people have sex and watching monkeys have sex, and the women got turned on by like everything, including the monkeys having sex. Like we just get turned on by watching people, and apparently monkeys, having sex. I think that's natural. But you know, what I see that I think is also pretty common in my practice and in the people that I supervise is the heterosexual couple where the woman walks in on the guy masturbating to porn and she says, oh my God, you're cheating on me. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I've been doing this since I was 10. Like this has nothing to do with you. And that for him, it's just sort of compartmentalized, private part of his sexuality. And for her, it's I had this implicit assumption that you were not going to touch your own penis after we got married, and I was only going to touch your penis. I was going to be the only one that touched your penis, and I don't feel like touching your penis, so I thought no one would touch your penis. <laughs> and he's like, "What are you, you know, like, this is mine. And then it doesn't matter what I'm looking at. I still want to have sex with you. 
even though what I'm looking at is totally different than you. So, you know, we have a bunch of issues there. We have the imagery that feels threatening to her, and then we have the complexity of his own masturbatory life and, you know, the difference between privacy and secrecy. And there's a lot to unpack there, but that's that's sort of like a typical scenario that I hear over and over again. Hence the title of my book, His Porn, Her Pain. Right. Right. You're right. That's a really common scenario. And, you know, interestingly enough, if you if you take a thousand couples with that scenario, not every couple has that scenario, but if you take a thousand couples with that scenario, she walks in on him masturbating with porn. She thinks it's infidelity. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. If you take a thousand couples with that scenario, almost every single one of them, one or both people are dissatisfied with their sex life. You rarely hear people, you you tell me, Tammy, because you see clients too. You rarely hear people who are both satisfied with their sex lives where somebody is complaining about somebody else's porn use. So when she walks in and says, this is a form of infidelity and turns to me uh, in session and says, don't you agree that's a form of infidelity? The first thing I say is, well, the question of whether or not it's infidelity is really not the point. That's just a category. Obviously, you're upset. You're upset. You're upset. Let's talk about your upset. What I want to know is, are you satisfied with your sex life? And if not, what is it about your sexual relationship that you're dissatisfied with? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. When couples are in conflict about pornography, typically, they ought to be talking about something else. But instead of talking about the something else, they're talking about porn. And then they could they could quarrel about that until the end of time. It's a form of infidelity. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. It's much better to say, okay, let's talk about what's really going on in your relationship that you're dissatisfied with. And by the time we're done with all of that, if you still want to talk about porn, sure, we'll talk about porn. We'll be right back. Help us spread the love. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and take a minute to give us five stars or write a great review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do we love to hear your feedback, your support really makes a difference. It's going to help other people who are looking for advice about their relationships and sexual wellness. We have lots of amazing guests coming up, so subscribe so you don't miss a thing. We love and appreciate all of you, and thank you so much for your continued support. Dr. Marty, we have a question from a listener. The question is from Bill in Minnesota. I started watching porn when I was 12. I'm 22 now. I have a girlfriend who I love. My problem is I really don't like to have sex without porn. What do I do? Good question, Bill. Thank you, Bill. I really don't like to have sex without porn. Well... I'm not sure what he means by that. Let's generalize this question just a tiny bit. There's a lot of people who compare their sexual experience when they masturbate to their sexual experience with a partner and their sexual experience with a partner isn't as intense. It isn't as rich. It isn't as compelling. And that's an interesting phenomenon. We see that all the time. We, and the question is what's going on there. And I think what's going on there is that when people masturbate with porn, when people masturbate in general and with porn in particular, they have a focus for their attention. And 
they're completely focused on giving themselves pleasure. They're completely focused on creating an experience that's enjoyable. And sensation-focused too, right? Yeah, of course. Totally about their sensation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When people have sex with a partner, it's actually a lot more complicated. And it's particularly complicated if a person is concerned about, am I going to keep my erection? Is my partner having a good time? What if they don't like my big belly? What does it mean that they have that look on their face? (laughs) Why they make that noise? Yeah, so I, I think what a lot of people do is, they essentially bring their A game to masturbation and they bring their B game to partner sex. Right, because during masturbation, they look hot. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so when you have sex with a partner, it actually requires a certain kind of self-discipline. You have to just focus on the experience, not think about the fact that your partner uh, didn't uh, load the dishwasher properly that morning and not focus on, I hope my partner isn't judging my big belly and not uh, feeling, I wish I was with somebody else and really focus on the experience. And and part of the experience will be physical and part of the experience will be one of connection, ideally. So what I would say to Bill is you need to, if if you want to enjoy sex with your partner more, that's what you need to be focusing on when you're with your partner. How does she smell? He or she, how does your partner look? How does your partner smell? How does, when you caress your partner's leg, how does it feel in your fingertips? Not just how does it look, but how does it feel in your fingertips? So in a sense, we want to encourage people who want to have a better experience of partner sex. we We want to get them to be more mindful, get them to focus more directly, get them to be more present. Whatever language you want to use, People need to be more there and taking advantage of all the sensory input and all of the possible emotional connection. And when people do that, when people do that, it increases their satisfaction with partner sex dramatically. And then you don't hear people uh, comparing uh, partner sex so unfavorably to, um, to masturbation with or without porn. So do you encourage people to try to stop looking at porn, to reduce the amount of times, they, to try to control nah. it? Do you ever talk about that? Well, I, I talk about it because a lot of people come in and they say that that's what they want. Doc, can you help me look at, at porn less? And I think in general, it's easier, whether the subject is sex or, or cookies or anything else, I think it's easier to get people, it's easier to help people do something more than it is to help people do something less. That's just the way that that we are. Mm-hmm. When people say that they want to look at porn less, I ask them, well, what do you want to do more? And if they say, I want to think about my partner more, I say, well, then go ahead and think about your partner more. Let's figure out how to arrange that. I mean, it, it's impossible to not think of something like, don't think of a carrot. Don't think of a carrot. That's impossible, right? But what is possible is think of an eggplant. You know, they're purple, they're kind of shiny. They got that little stem at the top. It's got those little grooves. At the bottom, there's this leaf, five leaves at the bottom of an eggplant usually. That we can do. And we can actually teach people how to focus on eggplants way more than they currently do. But I hear a lot of people who say they they think they should masturbate less or their partner thinks they should masturbate less. And I call that the broccoli ice cream hypothesis, that If you want somebody to eat more broccoli, 
take away their ice cream. Mm. Well, <laughs> what you do is you take away somebody's ice cream and they get crabby, but they don't want to eat more broccoli. Yeah, they replace it with something. I think at the end of the day, most people who want their partner to give them more sexual attention, I think most people don't want, well, I'm horny and I can't jack off, so I guess I'll have sex with you. <laughs> I think what most people, if they want more sexual attention, I think what most people want is for their partner to say, ooh, giving you sexual attention, what a great opportunity for me. Let's definitely do that. I, I don't want to help people masturbate less or look at porn less as a strategy for getting them more interested in their partner. If somebody feels that they're masturbating to porn in a self-harming way, of course I want to help them do that last. The way to get them, the way to help people do that last is to help them understand what is the actual gratification? Why, why do some people masturbate three or four times a day? The fourth time you masturbate in a day, it's not because you're horny. It's not because you, you, uh, you yearn for the pleasure of an orgasm. The fourth time you masturbate in a day, it's not about sex. It's about something else. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing to do. But if you feel like you're spending way too much time masturbating with or without porn, let's figure out what you're actually doing there. Are you medicating depression? Are you trying to reduce your anxiety about a work project? Are you just bored to death? Are you trying to feel alive and you feel half dead inside? Do you want to feel some sense of autonomy or a affirmation of your masculinity or femininity? So people masturbate for a lot of reasons. And I'm not going to say that some are better than others. But if somebody wants to masturbate with porn last, I think it helps to figure out why are they doing it more than they think they should. Yeah, it's not about the broccoli. All right, last question. I'm really curious about, first of all, like the myths that people take from porn, because, you know, it is part of our sex education. Like people do look at it from the time they're 10. Right. And so how do you help someone or couples become, you know, more sort of sex savvy and into uh, creating more interest in sex together when they've learned these sort of myths from porn? Well, it is so interesting that so many people forget that porn is not a documentary. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? So what I tell people is that, uh, you know, real sex can't feel like porn sex looks. You will never get a blowjob that feels as good. Or, or lasts as long, sorry. <laughs> right, right, right. So for starters, we have to teach people that porn is, is not a documentary that shows real sex. What I tell people is that porn is unusual people with unusual bodies in unusual situations doing unusual things. Let's get that for starters. And if people say, I want sex in real life to be like it is in porn, I say, well, you know, that that's like saying that, you know, you watch Star Wars and you want to be able to fly around the moon. That's like saying, you know, you watch uh, car chases uh, on TV shows, and you want to be able to drive 100 miles an hour on the San Diego freeway. Well, you know, you just can't do that. And, and it's fun to watch car chases on TV. It's fun to watch Star Wars. It's fun to watch porn for some people. And you can't use that as a model of what real life is going to be about. If you do, you're going to be disappointed. And hey, that's why you're in my office. So you're absolutely right, Tammy, that People are learning things from porn that are really problematic. I don't think it's the same problematic things that other things. But when people look at porn, what they're looking at is displays of sex that 
that leave out a lot of the stuff that makes sex enjoyable. They leave out, porn leaves out, porn is a visual medium. So it's going to leave out everything that's boring to watch. So it's boring to watch people hug. So you don't see a lot of hugging in porn. It's boring to watch people talk about birth control. <laughs> it's boring to watch somebody pack their butt with lube. <laughs> so you don't see a lot of that. What you do see is a lot of people in porn uh, having stuff put in their butts without any lube whatsoever. That's because they put the lube in before the cameras were rolling. So a lot of the stuff that makes sex worth having, the whispering, the giggling, the nibbling, the gee, later tonight, maybe, um, all that stuff, that gets left out. And the stuff that happens after sex that we like, the cuddling, the gee, I'm really glad we did that, all that stuff, that gets left out too. And I don't criticize porn for that. It's a visual medium. It's a visual medium. So what I tell clients is that they need to appreciate that sex can be richer than what they see in porn. And it's certainly not going to be identical to what they see in porn. So it's not going to be, it's sex in real life is almost certainly not going to be as intense. On the other hand, it could be a lot more relaxed and connected. You know, I talk a lot about relaxation during sex, just in, in therapy in general. People, people, I think people focus too much on the excitement and not enough on the relaxation. Mm, that's a good point. So any last tips for our listeners? Is that one of them? Relax more, breathe? Relax more and look at the person you're having sex with and do what you can in the early stages of the sex to make it as comfortable as possible, you know? Tell the other person, you know, I hurt my shoulder again this morning. So, you know, get on my other side. <laughs> if you have to pee. We'd have you to have go to... through a whole list of joint joint problems. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> it drives me crazy when, when people, and we have some colleagues like this, they celebrate all of this, oh, sex for the elderly and sex over 60 and all that. You know, one of the things that doesn't get talked enough about is the role of chronic pain. <laughs> shaping the sex lives of people who are in their 50s and 60s and later. And the truth is that when chronic pain problematizes our bodies, it's extremely difficult to eroticize our partners or ourselves. And that needs to get talked about way more. And all this stuff about sex and successful aging and all that, it drives me crazy. It's so not fair to regular people to suggest that sex can be uh, wild and crazy when you're 65 years old. I'm not worried about 65-year-olds getting STDs. I'm worried about 65-year-olds breaking a hip. <laughs> I don't know if I break a hip, but I might pull my back out. <laughs> well, there happens. you go. <laughs> I got a, bad, a couple bad knees and bad shoulder and tennis elbow. And, you know, like, that, that's certainly happening. So, Marty, any last uh, tips for people to take with them? So I like the thought of like, watch your joints, take it slow, relax. Those are great pointers. Any last tips and anything that you have coming up that you want to make sure that people know about? As you know, I have a pretty big website. It's sexed.org, not sexed.com, which is a porn site. <laughs> <laughs> and on my website, there's lots and lots and lots of totally free articles about uh, sexual connection and pornography. And occasionally I write, I'll write about a, a little case that you know, people came into my office and we talked about this and that and 
you know, people were concerned about erections or whatever it is. So lots of free stuff on my uh, website and the opportunity to buy books and videos and all sorts of other stuff that I myself have authored. And so I approve of 100%. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thank you, Marty, so much for being here. Dr. Marty Klein, talking about porn literacy in a time of porn panic. And if you want to find Dr. Marty Klein, you can go to sexed.org. So please join us again. Leave me a question at Ask Dr. Tammy to be answered by one of our experts on the next episode of The Trouble with Sex. Until then, until we meet again, I'm Dr. Tammy. Stay sexy, stay well, stay healthy. Have a question about your relationship, your sex life, or sexual wellness? Visit thetroublewithsex.com and click on Ask Dr. Tammy to send me your question. For sex-positive tips, live events, and updates, join my mailing list and follow us at The Trouble With Sex on Instagram. The Trouble With Sex is produced by Brandy Savitt and Jane Applegate. Our audio is designed by Flavor Lab, New York City. This episode was recorded by Bruce Hirschfield and mixed by J.C. Chow. Music by Bruce Hirschfield. Bruce Hirschfield.